the countries that are least responsible for the greenhouse gas emissions, people don't drive cars, they don't even have electricity, they don't have big manufacturing, and yet they are the ones most buffeted because they're unfortunate enough to live in tropical countries, to live on small island states with increasingly severe uh, cyclones and hurricanes. Even in rich countries, poor communities tend to live in the more vulnerable places and people of colour tend to be more affected. Indigenous people tend to be more affected. Earlier this month, a group of leading scientists made what they termed a final call for the world to address imminent climate catastrophe. Such warnings have fallen on deaf ears in the past, but one woman who's long been ahead of the curve in heeding the sustainability message is outspoken climate change campaigner Mary Robinson. The former Irish president, the first woman in history to hold that office, has built a career and reputation on seeking out seemingly insurmountable challenges and giving voice to the underrepresented and disadvantaged. She's retained a profoundly positive outlook throughout decades of public service at home and around the world, even when antagonised by the lunacy of Brexit or the rhetoric of rabble-rousing populists. This week, we welcome Mary Robinson to The Big Interview. Mary Robinson, a warm welcome to Monocle. Thanks for coming to see us at Midori House. It's um, a pleasure. I-, I wanted to start by asking you, we were just talking before the mics came up, about your globe-trotting and all the things you do. It's funny reading people's biographies before you sit down to chat with them. You've done a lot of things, and I wondered, is there a secret? I always like to pick the brains of smart, interesting people. What's the secret? Is it a sort of a voracious appetite for the next project, to know more, to meet more people? What What's the driver? Because it, it seems, it seems re- frankly, relentless. I think probably the connector between the various things that I've been doing is I do have a strong sense of justice. I joke, but maybe it's part of the reason that I grew up wedged between four brothers in the west of Ireland. So I needed to talk about human rights and equality and use my elbows. And I do have an urgency about justice. I see so much injustice in our world from various perspectives. Now I'm talking about climate justice, the injustice of climate change. Well, and we'll talk about that in a lot more detail. But just to go back to that that hunger then, four brothers, I can imagine, as you said, sharpen the elbows. How do you get back up again then when things don't go your way? And again, maybe we'll reflect on some specific Mm. examples of this later. How do you retain the the optimism? You strike me as a very sort of optimistic person. The challenges that you've Mm. risen to meet have have almost never been Mm. easy. Mm. How do you survive those moments? Mm. Do you have doubts about your your broader mission? I used to be asked that, especially when I was serving as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights from 1997 to 2002. I found that the way to do the job was to go to the places where human rights were being violated on a massive scale, where there were terrible problems. And I would come back energised. And my colleagues would say to me, you know, what is it? And I think I found a way to describe it more recently from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, whom I love. Um, I saw him recently in South Africa with the elders, and he was chair of the elders for a number of years. He's now the elder emeritus. But we were on a panel in New York a few years ago in front of young people It was a social good conference and they were supposed to be tweeting, which they were on their various phones and pads, etc. And when Archbishop Tutu gets in front of young people, he's so expressive, he loves them, he believes in them, etc. And we were being moderated by a journalist, a woman journalist, who turned to him quite sharply and said, Archbishop Tutu, why are you such an optimist? And he looked at her and he shook his head and he said, oh no, dearie, I'm not an optimist. I'm a prisoner of hope. And that phrase really spoke to me 
because if you're a prisoner of hope, then you find maybe the glass isn't half full, but there's something you can work on. And that's what I found in so many people. And I find it now in communities and very often women struggling with the uncertainty that everything has changed for the worse. They don't know when to sew, when to, and they form a group, they fight back, they get credit, they do something, they build resilience. And it's really enormously inspiring. And I guess that taps into this idea of thinking globally and acting locally, these inspiring people you're talking about. But to your point about going to where the challenge is most stark, if you have a, a challenge like climate change, which is by definition so global, so international, universal in character, where then do you go? Because well, that, that, pro- that problem is everywhere. Yeah, it's universal in character, but it's not universal in the way it affects people. Mm. And that's the injustice. And it's very stark because... The countries that are least responsible for the greenhouse gas emissions, people don't drive cars, they don't even have electricity, they don't have big manufacturing. And yet they are the ones most buffeted because they're unfortunate enough to live in tropical countries, to live on small island states with increasingly severe uh, cyclones and hurricanes. And here in the United Kingdom, in Ireland, in New York, People are more resilient. But even then, you know, look at Katrina, how it impacted in New Orleans. There are poor people in and around New Orleans who have never recovered. And similarly with Sandy. So even in rich countries, poor communities tend to live in the more vulnerable places. And there's a race issue and an indigenous people's issue there. People of colour tend to be more affected. Indigenous people tend to be more affected. Mary, let's talk a little bit about one of the, I guess, key functions of your role and one of the key potential routes out of the trouble that you've just described. And that's the quality of the political discourse more broadly. It's something that serves everybody well, but certainly the most vulnerable people. What do you make of it currently? And maybe we can look through the prism of the Republic of Ireland specifically. There's such erudition and there's so many progressive voices which are hugely encouraging but there's also a number of small-c conservative voices who seem to be fighting against the tide of change. What's your view, maybe if we, if we look at Ireland, first of all, of the, the quality of the current discourse, perhaps? I think I'd almost prefer to look more globally because that's, it's very striking. You know, we had a really good year in 2015. We got the 2030 agenda of the UN negotiated and agreed by 193 countries and with its 17 sustainable development goals for all countries, every country now, because the conclusion was that no country is living sustainably in a way that links us with the ecosystems that support us, with Mother Earth in effect. And therefore, we needed the 2030 agenda. And then we also got in December of 2015, the Paris Climate Agreement. And that is not a strong enough agreement, but it's a very fair agreement because it understood the problem for very poor countries that are vulnerable like Bangladesh and Vietnam and countries in Africa and also small island states, that they needed the world to commit to staying well below two degrees Celsius of warming above pre-industrial standards, the 19th century when manufacturing started, and working at 1.5 degrees. Also, the long-term goal of being carbon neutral by 2050. So that really seemed very positive. And now, just since then, and it's very disturbing, we've had the kind of disruption to that world. Uh, We have autocratic leaders. We have a president in the United States that is pulling the United States out. Ironically, President Trump cannot pull the United States out of the Paris Agreement until the 4th of November 2020. And the next presidential election is the 3rd of November 2020. So we'll see what happens. But it hasn't been good for the world. It hasn't been good for climate finance in particular. There are a lot of 
cities, states within the United States, business, civil society that have formed a coalition called We Are Still In, meaning we are still in the Paris Agreement. And, that, and that's good. But we're seeing populism. We're seeing anti-migrant sentiment. We're seeing some kind of a, a love-in with autocratic leaders. And it, it's, it's very alarming. And much of that feeds on this narrative, the fear of the other. And unscrupulous politicians obviously exploit that to their own ends. Why do you think it's manifest in that way? Because I suppose if you look at, say, the Trump base in the US, to generalise slightly, many of those people are in that same demographic you described just a moment ago, left behind, they feel it, or they literally are. And yet Trump's obviously managed to speak to some sort of instinct or a desire, a hunger in those people. And you know his support amongst that demographic is holding steady extraordinarily as he lurches from one crisis to the next. Why has it manifested itself in that way, do you think? It's a kind of populist simplicity. It's simplifying the solution and, uh, you know, certainly getting on a wavelength, but the wavelength is one that isn't going to necessarily translate. For example, his belief in coal. Instead of a just transition out of coal for those communities, retraining pensions for those who've worked for a long number of years in coal, and maybe... The climate world hasn't talked enough about being fair to those who will have to be affected. And of course, apart from getting out of carbon, we're also affected by automation. And there's a deceptiveness and a populism in not just the arguments of President Trump, but also in Europe, in some countries, you know, in Eastern Europe, Poland and Hungary. There's a simplifying and there's a very strong anti-migrant, anti-refugee. They will take your jobs or they will commit acts of terrorism or both. We have to understand that we had fascism in Europe in the 1930s and 40s. People can be whipped into um, that sense of solutions that appear to be very good, but actually don't stand up to examination. And just on that point about, I guess it's people's, maybe it's a, a short memory. You talk about you know, what happened in Europe in the 30s and 40s. There are demographics, for example, the sort of anti-European here in the UK who voted for Brexit, for example, who will either have first-hand memories or very close second-hand memories of that time. Why have they abandoned, if they did, if you agree with that premise, the learnings of, of history? Or do you think there's a complacency in certain Western liberal democracies about how safe our democratic values are? It strikes me that someone who grew up, even in, as a baby boomer, for example, many would have been born, there was the ration books, they saw the damage of what untrammeled nationalism could do. And yet they've sort of set their stall out with a political agenda that kind of stands in opposition to that. I think we were too complacent about the security of our democracy and our institutions. Um, I was in South Africa when President Obama gave the 16th, as it happened, Nelson Mandela Foundation lecture. I had given one in 2012 and it was wonderful to be there to hear the way in which he set out where our world is today, I would really encourage anybody listen to this program, get that speech. It's online. It's all over the place. And he really captured what the problem is and this undermining of the other, that the other is the threat and the fear, the populism, the simplicity of arguments. Democracy is complex and messy, but it's a much more responsive and safe system. We have to understand that we need now to defend much more vigorously the values that we took for granted and the institutions that we took for granted, because obviously democracy requires independence of judges and lack of corruption and so on. And, and he, he really spoke very well about all of those issues. Who should we look to 
to most effectively unpick the complexity that you just talked about there. And, and this, I guess, comes back to my initial question about the state of the discourse. What about the state of the political classes? Because it is striking to hear someone as erudite as Obama talking. So you know, he's such a beautiful orator, a craftsman of his words. But was, it's inescapable. He was followed in office by Donald Trump. Do we have the personnel here? Certainly in the UK, the field seems short. Back to my point earlier about the Republic of Ireland, I, there seems some hope. There's some good, mm. very principled and elegant individuals. Are there let enough let good ones where about, it Let me talk about one recent experience in Ireland, which, which is working very well. It's an experiment in deepening the awareness of democracy. We have a citizens' assembly, which is a 100 ordinary citizens chosen at random who meet on key issues. And they met on issues like climate change, made very good recommendations because Ireland is not good on climate change. In fact, our Prime Minister, our Taoiseach, said in the European Parliament that we are a laggard, unfortunately, on climate change and we need to change. And I'm glad to say recently Ireland became the first country in the world to divest from fossil fuel. But the Citizens' Assembly made very good recommendations on climate change. They made very good recommendations on same-sex marriage, followed by a great campaign of young people. Young people even came back to vote. They made startlingly good, in Irish terms, recommendations on getting rid of this Eighth Amendment, which had equated the life of the mother and the life of the unborn under our constitution. And I fought against that as a young senator in 1983 and argued that it would lead to a number of very, very tragic cases for women. And of course it did. But I honestly didn't believe that we could by referendum change it, that Irish people could actually vote. But because we had the Citizens' Assembly recommendation and the Citizens' Assembly meets with experts on both sides. In other words, on these issues, there are usually more than one side and dealing with the complexity. And then the the value is that these people listen and then form a judgment. And it's more or less consensus, not complete consensus, but, you know, by large majorities, it comes out with its recommendations. They've now set up a parliamentary task force to consider the recommendations of the Citizens' Assembly on climate change. And I think those recommendations could bring us much further. It's a good experiment. We need to deepen our involvement. We've got social media now. We have ways of deepening. But unfortunately, um, they're more likely to be used in a populist, simplifying way, which is not what is needed. And of course, what we do need to pick up on that train that you set back to your work, even in the early 1980s, an inspirational figure, certainly for the role of women in frontline politics and to press that that equality agenda. Again, if we take a we can take a global view, where are attitudes now? It was disappointing in some ways that the treatment of Hillary Clinton, for example, in that presidential election against Trump seemed to unpick some really unsavoury misogyny. Again, is there a complacency about the representation of women or the equality agenda broadly? I think there has been, you know, a very strong response to the politics of President Trump, if I could put it that way, the misogyny, etc. But also the harassment, the Me Too. In a way, it took Hollywood stars to somehow bring this out into the open. But it was actually women of colour in the United States who started the Me Too movement. But people weren't paying enough attention then. And now it's a much broader movement. I find women in all countries in the world are on the move, but it's not easy. I've just come from an elder's mission to Zimbabwe. I had been there in 2012 with a group of women from Africa to help get gender equality into the constitution, which we by and large did. I heard a good story about women registering to vote, that more women have registered to vote in these elections than ever before, and they have a new system of registration, so that's good. But... There are fewer women candidates and on social media, they are being excoriated, which is 
not good. And indeed, we had to address the fact that the Zimbabwean Electoral Commission is chaired by a woman judge and there are two women commissioners on it, apart from her, and they have been excoriated on social media. Now, it's probably legitimate. An electoral commission is a very central institution when you come up to elections, and these are very close elections in Zimbabwe. And you can criticise that maybe it's a bit too pro-government, maybe it's a bit too legalistic. That's all fair criticism. But they're actually slamming these women on social media in a very nasty way and actually threatening their lives. And we, I had to speak out about it. And there's a powerful potential for social media. We, you mentioned it just earlier, looking at Ireland and the climate change agenda. But what about this notion that it is still essentially an un, largely unregulated forum? Is there, must there end up being some form of regulation? Is that mandated by the state? I think, I think there must be more regulation and particularly the dark side of social media. Actually, my foundation on climate justice has just come off Facebook because we have seen that Facebook is not applying proper standards in relation to violence, abuse of children, etc. It's a small thing, but um, sorry. You know, I, I think we have to stand up for these values more. And I think we have to bring it home to the very wealthy technical plutocrats that they cannot undermine the values of our world. And I think we need more addressing of these issues and holding to account in a more effective way. And at the same time, I'm just involved in hoping that social media will take up this Mothers of Invention podcast on the fact that climate change is a man-made problem and needs a feminist solution. And of course, feminism doesn't exclude men. But I'm very aware of the power of social media also to put out good messages. Well, yeah, and obviously we're sat here. This is the the audio format. Just to touch briefly on that, you talk so elegantly about that speech by Obama. There's something about a human voice, whether it's one man or woman to a crowd of thousands yeah. or two people sitting across from one another in the table. What does that tap into for you, Mary? Is it something about there's an intimacy to it, I suppose? There's an immediacy. Why is the voice so powerful, so resonant? I much prefer to be asked to do something on radio or now podcast because television is a very distracted medium. You know, you're kind of looking, oh, you know, look at her hair. And, you know, I mean, it's all very short attention and very little attention. Whereas I think people will listen to a voice and will listen almost to an integrity of voice too. You can hear when people are speaking that they really care about values they care about. And and I think that can come across much better by voice. Well, naturally, we agree with that here, of course. (laughs) Um, If we take a step back, so many of the themes that we've already touched upon speak to a moment, if not of crisis, but of doubt, whether that's about democratic values, the representation of women. And you're obviously addressing so many of these very directly. Would you characterise it as a global crisis? I don't want to be sort of histrionic, but you know, people talk about the crisis of the left, for example, or, or of the centre, and we see more and more electorates reaching to either end of the political spectrum as a consequence. Are we in a crisis? If not, how would you characterise it? I think we are in a difficult time for democracies. I mean, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, people thought, you know, this is really, democracy has won. Now we know that this is a struggle that we're going to have to dig deep and come out of, hopefully stronger, but we're going to have to come out of it much better. The elders that I belong to that was formed by Nelson Mandela in 2007 are very committed to trying to give our leadership as an independent group that no longer are in politics, but we have had experiences that we want to share. We have spent the last year before celebrating the other day Nelson Mandela's 100th birthday in South Africa. We spent the last year on a campaign of walking together in the other's shoes, in the shoes of the migrant, in the shoes of the poor person, in the shoes. And the focus we've had hasn't been on us as elders, but on 
communities around the world that live by Nelson Mandela's values. We call them sparks of hope. And if you go into the website of the elders, you see these hundred sparks of hope that we celebrated in South Africa. They are wonderful communities and they live by these values and they're all over the world. And we're trying to keep enlarging that. We linked with the foundation of President Obama, who brought 200 young African leaders to South Africa. And some of the elders went and addressed them. And we had a meeting with President Obama and we talked about these issues and talked about the need for younger leadership now to be really ready to take on the fight for our democratic values, the fight for a fairer world, the fight against the sort of extremes of the, the fact that, what, you know, half a dozen men and they are men, own as much as half the world. I mean, it's outrageous, outrageous. And yet we seem to be prepared to tolerate it. And we do see great inequality as part of the problem. And I guess ways of channeling that outrage is exactly what we need to see more of and represented better. Mary, I did want to ask you about, if we go back to your years as president through the 1990s and your role, you mentioned already, in inspiring the agenda for equality and all sorts of other things. What about the, the peace agreement? And obviously there's pressure points now partly because of the lunacy and I'll say my view the lunacy of Brexit and the challenge that poses are we at risk of unraveling the work that you and others around that time did to bring peace back to to Ireland how concerned should we be and are there you said sparks of hope a moment ago Please tell me, are there some when we look at that situation? <laughs> there is actually one spark of hope in Northern Ireland, the Corrimila community, which has been going for more than 50 years and is a great peace community in Northern Ireland, as it happens. But more to, to answer your question, as president of Ireland, as a non-executive president, I wasn't in the front line of trying to build up the negotiations which became the Good Friday Agreement in the year after I left the presidency. But I did go out of my way to meet communities in Northern Ireland, travel there quite a lot, but also invite down to my official residence women's groups which had formed, come out of their housing estates and formed an alliance which the men didn't. It was the women from Catholic and, and Protestant uh, housing estates who started to build peace, the interreligious groups, etc. And I do know the importance of the Northern Ireland Peace Agreement and how many worked for it. George Mitchell and the United States supporting, the European Union heavily supporting, people like Cyril Ramaphosa, now president of, of South Africa, came with Marty Atasari, who became president of, of Finland, to get the IRA to give up their guns. So there was a huge external understanding that this was an important peace process and it was a great and is a great success. And you now see Belfast as a multicultural city and Derry, but it's not secure. And if there were to be a border on Ireland, we could not be sure that on both sides there are people lying in the long grass waiting to re-evoke a time when they felt powerful because they had a gun or they had the capacity to rob banks and justify it. So we should never undermine a successful peace agreement. It's so important. And I don't think you should downplay your, your role in the broader landscape, Mary, because there's an idea about a progressive agenda, a truly inclusive agenda, and that's that has a much more oh, far-reaching impact, yes. which I think is important to say. Just on that point, then, finally, I'm disappointed by the calibre of our political class in Westminster specifically, I'm particularly appalled by the pronouncements on Brexit from the likes of our recently departed Foreign Secretary, etc. Clearly playing politics and their own what's expedient for them was something that's so much more important. And presumably you share that disappointment in some of those characters. How can we reassure ourselves if people are willing to play 
the personal political game is something of such of such incredible import. That's a challenge even to your optimism, surely. I think from an Irish perspective, and it's true north and south, I've been a few times recently to Belfast. Belfast, of course, uh, Northern Ireland voted to remain, as you know. There is a, a sort of sense that this is a very sad moment for the United Kingdom, for Britain, because... You know, from an external viewpoint, it does seem like a sort of national own goal with only worsening economic prospects for the people of Britain. And then it has also a potential to have a negative impact on an Ireland where we've come out of a severe economic crisis. Our economy is doing well. We're in a good place with our two referendums that involved young people, young people even coming back at their own expense to vote in those referendums. So there's a very strong positive mood. And yet we're very apprehensive about what Brexit will do to our neighbour, whom we have very close relations with, and also to our own island. Well, I guess, and then to pick up on this point about broadly optimism, there will be many young people who only know this period of history post-98, and they'll now be, what, 20 years old and so on. We keep talking about optimism and the power of young people to seize the mantle and make progress. Presumably that must be, Mary, one of the great things that inspires you, practically wherever in the world you go, to see that hunger for for change, for progress on any number of the issues we've talked about, on even the most profound, and mm. look, climate change is front and centre. Do you feel it's enough? Do you get that sense from the young people wherever you talk I to them? I certainly do. And I mean, these hundred sparks of hope, these communities around the world, where young people, we're seeing young leaders. There's a young leader in Ethiopia who has made peace with Eritrea. That's extraordinarily important in that area of the Horn of Africa. There's a young leader in France, Macron, who's trying very hard to address in a European level the values of how Europe can move forward. And leadership matters. And it is good to see young leaders at, at all levels who can give those good examples. But, you know, I am very strongly a prisoner of hope. And I believe that hope is extraordinarily important. And I have great hope for young people in our world today. They're better informed. They have more access to information. The young leaders who came together with President Obama in Joburg to mark Mandela's 100th birthday were fantastic. And a lot of them were women. You know, it was really remarkable to hear them. Um, I watched some of the discussions. Some of them were live on television. And it was just wonderful to hear their commitment to values that will help their continent. That's good. Because I was feeling a little morose at times. I feel I feel better already. Um, just tell me. I, I began by talking about your extraordinary career and the challenges you seem to just constantly and still keep seeking out actively. What about if Mary Robinson's feeling I don't know a little tired one day? Where does that other inspiration to go? A bit of escapism. Is it a nice walk in the countryside? Uh, is there a particular person you seek out for some some <laughs> solace? I don't know. A, 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 a glass of fine wine, May. What's where do you find that little moment where I don't know to reflect and just to change the pace a little? Uh, it's, it's very easy because I'm a grandmother. We have three children, and I have six grandchildren. The eldest is fourteen. And four of them are in Dublin, so I see them quite a lot. Two of them, a four-year-old and his one-year-old sister, come every Sunday evening to have a bath in our place because they don't have a bath in their small apartment in this Dublin. Doesn't, this doesn't sound very relaxing, Mary. <laughs> no, no, it's very relaxing, I assure you. It's, it's very relaxing. And I love going for walks and I love... Uh, friendship is, is very important to me. Well, there's something powerfully non-judgmental, I think, about a four-year-old or a one-year-old. Uh, they, they tend to kind of say, oh, it, yes, say how it is. Absolutely. A final thought and, there, Mary. And I must say a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. They're picking up some bad habits by then, in my experience. Um, what world awaits, let's say, your one-year-old grandchild, your youngest? If that we is look... actually that is what, I, what profoundly motivates me now. I think about that world of my grandchildren. They'll be in their 
30s and 40s in 2050, they'll share the world with at least 9 billion, probably 9.5 billion. We have about 7.6 billion at the moment. That's a terribly big increase in a world where people are aware of food insecurity because they don't know when to sow and when to harvest, water insecurity because of severe drought followed by flash flooding that disappears, and an insecurity in our world. So all of that ties together. And I think climate justice is a good way of looking at it. We could have a much fairer world. I'm optimistic about the kind of world we could have if we can get the politics right. And we need to address with much more knowledge of the urgency in different parts of the world. There are people who are fighting back in a kind of broader way of realising we need to see the potential for that world to be a world that is much healthier, that is much fairer economically, that is a world where people are more productive because they have access and because they have they share the knowledge base. So that is very much what gets me out of bed in the morning. Well, and, and, and long may it continue to do so. And we like to always end on a sort of a call for action, an optimistic note. Uh, and Mary, you've done exactly that for us. Mary Robinson, thanks for coming to speak to us on The Big Interview. Pleasure. Thank you. My thanks to Mary Robinson. To hear more about her pursuit for climate justice, listen to her podcast, Mothers of Invention, on mothersofinvention.online or wherever you find your podcasts. The Big Interview is produced by Yolene Goffin and edited by Cassie Galpin. I'm Tom Edwards. Thank you very much for listening. Listening.